Hi, everybody. This is your host, John Tucker from Carabiz Insider. I have a very special guest here with me today, John Ellis from Cox Automotive. Hi, John. How are you doing today? I'm well, John. Thank you. How about yourself? I'm good. Thank you. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, someone with a lot of knowledge and uh, experience in the business, and someone can really uh, shed some light on a lot of information happening in the car business, such as you know electrification and all that interesting stuff. So uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our viewers and listeners? Tell us uh, who John Ellis is and what's your background and all that good information. Certainly. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for having me on the show. It's an honor to be here. So uh, I, you know, I'm a, an economist by education. So um, I'm not an economist for our company, but I use that in all of my strategic business uh, dealings with our clients today and the research that I do. So that's very helpful in today's economy, especially understanding exactly where we are in this current environment. Um, so, and as an, as, uh, an educated economist, I have an advanced degree in international business. So I uh, studied the Netherlands, did a business plan and, and my thesis all around the Netherlands and go to market in, in the EU. So that was pretty, uh, before it was the EU, this was in the eighties. So that's really where my passion is to understanding economic conditions, geopolitical influences in our, uh, current environment, future state, and then of course, history to determine how we go forward, right? How to shoot an azimuth uh, for to navigate current waters. So uh, I've been with Cox Automotive for 16 years. I've been in the automotive industry for almost 20. I was with Gulf States Toyota as well. So I uh, really got a passion later in life. I'm in my 50s for automotive. So fortunate enough to come over here, learn the business from the ground up, also from that um, uh, OEM as well. And then the last few years, really engaging with our largest clients on strategic insights and thoughts on how to navigate the pandemic from start to finish. And that's really where um, uh, I began to culminate all the experiences of my life, including my education, to really make an impact in not only our business and the industry, but with our clients at the Cox Automotive. So having done that for the last couple of years, um, actually for the last three years, you know, we have a new uh, mobility division and uh, I was tapped on the shoulder to uh, help head the strategy for our battery solutions to part of our mobility. So how we handle the battery um, once production is over and the car's in use. And so that's really where I focus today. Well, that's, uh, that's really good stuff because electrification is a really hot topic right now. And, and you're someone with a lot of access to a big data to be able to talk about this thing. <clears throat> So you said something really interesting, a, a new division, uh, the mobility division. So uh, could you explain more about what that division does and uh, what you guys really doing these days? Sure, certainly. You know, Cox Automotive uh, is an um, you know, automotive ecosystem. And in that ecosystem, we have a mobility division that really focuses on you know, what's next, right? What's uh, mobility look like for our, our industry and in, in, in ways that maybe we don't understand today. And so it's led by uh, Joe George, our president of mobility, uh, a very knowledgeable and influential person in the industry. So uh, very um, well led there, right? And so um, in that there's multiple areas of uh, autonomous, uh, shared electrification, of course, and then, um, fleet services. And again, my area of expertise is strictly around the battery services and solutions area. That's nice. So the battery is the most, uh, I would say the major component in the electric car, right? 
because electric cars are not like your typical ICE engine vehicles that you don't really need to worry about too much about your transmission and your gears that much because mm -hmm. you got an electric engine so you can distribute the power a lot easier. Some applications will see cars that have electric engines on every tire, right? And they have that four-wheel right. drive technology like that. I mean, they're prototypes, but it is possible to make these things. So battery becomes your most important component because, uh, you know, mm -hmm. battery, you're not just producing the battery, but what do you do after the battery? Like, because there's a lifetime on that battery. So uh, I don't know if your expertise falls into that, but like... You know, what's the average, you know, uh, I would say the lifetime of a battery and what do you do after that? Like, because I heard it's uh, hard to make these batteries, right? So would you like to talk about that a little bit? Sure, certainly. I think you've hit the nail on the head. The battery is the new engine, right? So it's the most major component of that vehicle today and costly, right? But also, uh, you know, most important. And so when you think about the battery, um, there's tons of components, high voltage components around it, the motors, the converters, right? Um, the, the, the battery drives every bit of it. And so the life cycle of that battery, typically in warranty terms, so strictly in warranty terms, is eight to 10 years, um, depending around 100,000 miles. So if you look at the OEM's warranty on their batteries, that's really the range it stays in. Um, Unfortunately, you know, these, this is a new technology. So what we're finding is there are situations where they go from production uh, to the market and there's some issues right away, right? So early, long before, and that's when the warranty kicks in and um, companies um, like ours uh, have an opportunity to help the OEM administer their warranty process. So we do that uh, in, in all the areas that you spoke about today, especially around um, um, administration of that warranty process from the end user to the OEM, but also from uh, determining the, the state of that battery, the state of health, so to speak. And then uh, that determines whether we remanufacture and repair that battery, or we repurpose it to a second life, or if the battery is just, it's time, depending on the, the severity to go straight to recycling. Wow, that's a very uh, complicated process and uncharted territory. So you guys are probably the first company uh, trying to come up with those processes because it hasn't been done before. And the other manufacturer like Tesla probably has their own stuff and they're pretty much very protective of what they do. And like, we don't know what their processes are pretty much, right? They're very separate than the car business. Like they're in the automotive, but they're very separate. Like, I don't mm -hmm. think they even attend an ADA or anything. And uh it's an interesting thing. So what you guys are doing is very important for this OEMs because like traditional car bands like Toyota, Honda, you know, Nissan, uh, they need help in that because, you know, it's uncharted yeah. territory, right? Um, I was just reading in the news yesterday, it was announced. Uh, what do you think about these partnerships between uh, OEMs like Honda and GM just announced that they're going to be building cars together to make it more affordable for uh, consumers? Well, what, what is your uh, opinion on that? You know, understanding the complexities in our industry and the CapEx, the expense of getting into this space the way they need to, um, it, it, I think it's uh, it, it, it's foretelling that we're going to see many more of these and it's exactly the strategic moves that uh, will make this a long-term play for us. We've seen electrification come and go over and over again, but I think it's here to stay now. The train has left the station for many reasons, um, not only for uh, geopolitical, but also because of you know, what we're seeing 
in um, you know the, the, the push for environmental regulations, along with um, you know, really the, the cost structure of the EV is really starting to drop. I mean, it's not exactly where it needs to be today, but it's getting there and it will be there soon where the average consumer can afford that front end cost of an EV uh, purchase. So saying all that, these OEMs really have to um, leverage themselves correctly. And I think this is a great example of how necessity breeds invention. GM has just come out with the ultimate battery, which is their prototype. It's their, it's their um, invention, so to speak. They will allow them to uh, use this in multiple make mo I mean, models. So I think up to 17, which is exactly what we need, standardization. We don't need a different battery in every GM model that they have. And today, there are different batteries in, in different models. And so that makes it very hard to service them, to understand the data mapping components inside the battery, which also makes it hard to you know, really understand the, the state of health. So thinking about all that, GM has built this ultimate battery, which I think you know, is, is advantageous to Honda. But on the flip side, Honda has technologies and, and, and uh, expertise that'll be helpful to GM. So I think we're gonna see a lot more of this and I think it's a great thing. Yeah, I think, uh, I think you're absolutely right. You know, better cooperation is gonna like, more they, the more they work together rather than work against each other in this case, it's gonna benefit only the consumers, right? And, and the companies as well. So it's it's a good thing. You're you're and the other thing is this technology is very expensive to develop mm -hmm. and make these batteries. And if you don't have one size standardized like size, everybody decide to make their own stuff. Interchangeability of the parts gonna be an issue too. So like if if GM and 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 Honda shares the same kind of battery technology and the size and stuff, right? Then they can be interchangeable. So finding spare parts gonna be easier. And training technicians is going to be a lot easier. So then you don't need to train specifically technicians on Honda products. I mean, someone trained on GM can work on Honda too, which is, I think, good. Because we got to retrain all those technicians again for these electric cars. They're going to be different, right? So well, I think that's a, that's a great point. If you think about electric vehicles today, and I was reading about this just the other day, the powertrain is the only thing that's different. So that's what's so exciting about uh, moving into electrification is we're not re rebuilding the vehicle. We don't have to, so to speak. I mean, upfitting is even a an industry initiative today, taking existing ICE vehicles and upfitting them with an EV powertrain because, you know, the brakes, the all, you know, if you look at the Tesla right now, it's still got the heat, the, the compressor for the AC, it's got the heater, it's got a lot of converters in there to make that, you know, down to the right voltage and the right AC or DC conversion to make all these other components work that you see in a regular ICE vehicle. So uh, besides the fact that there's only set roughly 700 moving parts in an EV versus over 2000 in an ICE vehicle makes it a lot simpler. The parts that are left in an EV besides the powertrain is pretty much what we're used to working on today for technicians. So yeah, there's going to be some advancements in training. We're doing that as well, training our folks up. Uh, but I do agree that, um, you know, it, it's going to make it a lot simpler and easier for us to uh, work on the vehicles. That's plus great. The maintenance costs, yeah. Plus the end user maintenance costs will be reduced. So let's talk about that maintenance thing a little bit because the biggest uh, elephant in the room when you talk to the dealers who currently sell ice cars, mm -hmm. they're so worried about their service income is going to diminish significantly mm -hmm. once we switch over to the uh, electric only vehicles. Because as you know, when you sell a brand new car, generally speaking, four to five years is your average time when people go back to the uh, franchise dealership to do all changes and all that maintenances. 
Now, when I talk to dealer principals, the biggest concern is, okay, we switched electric. How are we going to make money? Because, you know, fixed operations is where we make our big income. And fixed operations is your specialty too, because you work for Gulf States Toyota, right? So what do you think about that? What's your opinion? Yeah, you know, I think just like everything in EV world, in the electrification pioneering space that we're in today, transparency and knowledge is going to be very important. Uh, we, we're doing studies, and, and I've read some studies where it shows exactly uh, the opposite of what dealers are so concerned about. It is that the, the, the cash pay repair order is actually going to grow in revenue, albeit there'll be, you know, be fewer of them, right? So, um, Think about the supply chain today. Fewer cars, higher profits, right? We saw, okay, we, we don't have as many new cars in the market. How are we going to make it? Well, dealers had record years last year, right? Same thing I think is going to you're going to see in, in the electrification for a fixed op is the same. You're going to have fewer uh, maybe repair visits, but larger repair order volume, uh, revenue volume. So they're going to find that, wait a minute, uh, there's a balance here. Secondly, it's going to help them with, uh, scheduling with employee headcount, right? Fewer visits, but higher ROs means less traffic, but still higher volume and profitable traffic. And the third thing you have to think about is in an EV world with the owners. And, you know, I've got, we have, well, my father has an EV. And so there's a lot of, I get a lot of knowledge from his eight years ownership of a Tesla and how his experience has been is that they're going to go back to the, their dealer more often than an ICE vehicle because of the technology in that vehicle. Not only the software that need to be upgraded, but also the, you know, the over-the-air opportunities with the OEM to update that vehicle and have that vehicle uh, monitored, right, for service needs and those kind of things. So you're going to find, I think, a deeper loyalty connection in the fixed op space for dealers for those nameplates than you have ever seen before because of the uh, high technology and value of the vehicle. So I think uh, just the opposite. So that's really interesting what you're saying because. If you think logically, right, it, it makes a lot of sense because now these ice, these electric cars are going to come out. So the third party repair shops don't have equipment and training to fix these cars and do any kind of maintenance on them. So now a lot of people will most likely to go back to dealerships, even longer periods than the five years, four years that we see normally in average. So then uh, there's going to be more loyalty to the dealers. So then technically speaking, right? Um, dealerships really don't need to worry about this and they should actually become happier because they're going to have better uh, control on the, on the business, I would think, right? Would, would you agree with that? I do. And I think thinking about it that way will allow them to not only <clears throat> train and become um, you know, more customer focused in that area of the business, but it'll, it'll create that image that they're the place to go. So if I bought uh, a, you know, a vehicle from this OEM nameplate that was EV, I'm getting better service interactions at this same nameplate across downtown at a different location that can service my EV. So it gives them an opportunity to say, hey, this is my nameplate EV. I'm going to be the best in the service part of the business for this nameplate EV. And that has a lot to do with not only uh, transparency, software, tr internal training, but also leadership, right? And so I think there's opportunities to really win in that space, having less competition from third party. Right, so those third parties are going to have to go somewhere. Jiffy Lube, you know, I, you know. Again, you, I can only talk about the Tesla my father owns, but he doesn't go to Jiffy Lube. And when he has needs tire repair and it's an eight-year-old vehicle, he doesn't go to the, the local tire store. 
so you know there's a lot of uh a lot of loyalty and connection points that'll be there you just want to be the dealer that they think of first even if it's not where they bought from if it's the same nameplate the another the the another topic um that i like to to get your opinion on it is you know let's talk about like a typical uh, japanese brand like toyota or honda mm -hmm. generally speaking majority of the business relies on leasing and then you put them on a four-year lease get them out on the second or third year take that used car make it a cpo put in the business you know it's a textbook strategy to grow your business and it works in every probably uh, Toyota or Honda or any kind of dealership that embraces this idea, right? And I, and I see it's working really well. So when you do the electrification and because of that, the used vehicle values, like determination of that value, because now, okay, you, the brands have the reputation, but once they switch to electric, the reputation, of course, carries with them. But these uh, analysts, risk people who make the calculations on the residual values, what do you think, like, what strategy do you think they're going to be able to, uh, because like with the ice, we know what it is, right? But mm. with the electric, we don't know a lot about how long these cars last and what's going to be the resale value of these vehicles. What's your take on that? <clears throat> well, if you, if you think about what we just spoke of, a large portion of the vehicle is still an ice vehicle without the powertrain of an ice engine. So... You know, we know a lot about how long brakes, batteries, tires, you know, those things last, the component, other component parts in the vehicle. Well, you know, what's interesting is the battery health, right? The life of that battery, which we already established as the majority of uh, the value of that vehicle to a reseller. And so uh, I know companies like ours are, uh, we're working on building those algorithms to um, determine the value of that battery's health, state of health so that we can give that second life valuation like we do today with uh, CR grades at Mannheim for our ICE vehicles, right? Does that make sense? And so um, it's one of the reasons why uh, we are in this space because we know that's gonna be very important in the future. Yeah, no, because like, I think that's gonna make a little bit shift there. Right now, like, you know, people lease a car, right? Mm -hmm. You drive it, let's say you're in a 48 months lease, and by like 24 to 24 months and onwards, dealer contacts you, says, hey, I'll get you out of your car, key to key. Maybe I'll give you some equity on your vehicle too. And that way they grow their business exponentially because you got a used car, you sell another new car, you make sure that customer stays in that ecosystem. So with the electric cars, uh, because the reason I'm asking that question is I don't see Tesla, like a brand like Tesla doesn't pay too much attention to their used uh, vehicles. And that surprised me. Mm -hmm. I see in the US, they got their Tesla CPU program. I checked their website. But in Canada, they just wholesale these cars. They ended up in the auction. And I don't see any Tesla dealers selling these vehicles from their shops. And mm -hmm. I think I don't, it, it didn't make sense to me because these cars are still running fine and the, the up-to-date technology in them. So uh, that's why I was asking that. Um, any, any, any knowledge you have about uh, the CPO uh, for electrification too? Is that something you guys are like uh, working on that too? Come up with some CPO programs for manufacturers to come up with for these EVs? Is that something you guys work on? Yeah, you know, I'm not certain. I'm not in that space. It's hard to say, but I can tell you just just reading research. You know, I know that leasing is a big 
next step for the EV market just because of the front end cost of the retail price of the EV. It's a way to get you know, a different uh, demographic into that EV for the first life. And then of course, to your point, having a, a fantastic valued uh, vehicle for second life. And of course, um, we know that it, with a Tesla, let's say for example, after the 10 years, if you do have to put another battery in and it's 18 to $20,000 or probably by then it would be much less because the cost and value of batteries are going down as production ramps up and technology increases that, um, you know, you, you'll still have a 10 year old vehicle that's almost brand new, as long as the other component parts are in great shape, which they should be. And so um, the engine and transmission are where most people get worried when they buy a car that's eight to 10 years old with a brand new battery, uh, it's, it's pretty economical and you have a pretty nice vehicle back on hand at later life. So there's a lot of opportunity for second, third life for EVs, certainly. And I know that that's a space that we're interested in. I just don't know much about what we're doing there today. Yeah, no, no, I, no, that's, that's fine. Uh, but, but you're right. Like a 10 year old vehicle normally with 300,000 miles, you, you don't want to buy that car, right? Because the engine and transmission, you may need that. And replacing that kind of big components is going to cost you a lot of money to do that. And then you're not putting a brand new engine, you're putting something rebuilt, right? Which is not going to perform as good as when that car was brand new. Mm. But with the electric cars, if you replace that battery, because the electric motors, my understanding is the lifetime on that is a lot longer. Mm. That's why they use them in the trains and stuff, you know, Correct. like the heavy machineries, they use electric because engines are a lot more reliable and simpler, right? And uh, maybe that could be something interesting for OEMs to look into it to maybe five years old, create those lease programs for five years, get those cars back, make it a CPU and make it a lot more affordable for people by replacing the batteries. Um, the last question I want to ask you is about, uh, I see in the news that Tesla was, uh, the reason I keep bringing Tesla because they're the largest in the world in terms of the volume and they're the most forward thinking and innovative in this space. So uh, they're talking about enlarging the batteries. Like I think because all those, like when we think about a battery, it's not just a one size big thing, right? It's multiple cells in it. So Correct. they made this agreement with Panasonic and now they make those batteries uh, bigger per, per piece. Uh, what do you think on that? Why would they do? What's the benefit of doing that? Is it just cutting the manufacturing costs on it? Well, so of course, okay, so let's just let's just say what it is. It's it's taking this uh, battery, and and uh, if I could show you on the screen, I would. But um, from twenty one seventy to forty eight sixty, and that's forty eight uh, forty six by eighty or twenty one by seventy. And those are the cell sizes inside the module. And so, if you think about it. Uh, just out, out of elementary, right? Being a mathematician and an economist myself, inside of a module, the fewer components inside of a module, right? The more uh, less um, you have for uh, error, and then of course uh, the, the cost efficiency. So, if you have a module with twelve uh, cells that are twenty-one by seventy, and now you only have four that are forty-six by thirty, that cuts down on production costs. One, and then number two is. They have a lot larger energy density because if you think about the cells lined up in a module, they their spaces between them, you line them up, just think about anything else lined one to one to one. Well, now you don't have as many lined one to one to one with a lot of space in between and lack of space usage, Some bigger mod, uh, cells inside the module, which is what you're talking about with Tesla and LG, does allow for larger energy density, which means longer range, more power, and of course, 
less production uh, cost, so which means a less uh, expensive battery. So I think it's a great thing. I, I leave it up to Elon to do that. He's uh, I'm a big fan. Uh, I read his, almost everything he can put out because I, I, it doesn't have to be EV because I think the way he thinks um, is a lot like Steve Jobs, and it reminds me of uh, you know the, his biography that I read. So yeah, I'm excited about what that will look like here in the next uh, 12 to 24 months. I think it'll be a big innovation for us. Yeah, I'm looking forward to see that. What kind of performance improvements is going to add into that vehicle and how much it's going to increase its range and what kind of cost-effective measures going to be reflected to the consumers? Because at the end of the day, you want to buy an electric vehicle with a decent distance like range. What are you looking at? 40 grand? That's right. that's pretty pretty strong amount of uh, uh, price tag there because an average millennial or uh, or gen z is not going to be able to afford those vehicles and those are going to be the ones uh uh typical consumers by 2030 are the ones your majority of your car buyers going to be gen z's and millennials and unless the, this becomes affordable uh it's going to be a, a challenge for car buyers because right now you know you can buy a car what 25 26 thousand dollars a decent ice vehicle and that's the affordability range, four to five hundred dollars a month payment, you know. Right. And let's see right. how that's gonna work out. Hopefully it becomes more affordable because I talk to, you know, people, everybody's expecting uh subsidization from the government. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that's too sustainable either, because when you start selling millions of cars and this money comes from taxpayers, <laughs> how are you gonna be able to continue to subsidize this by five, ten thousand dollars? It's doesn't make sense to me, honestly speaking. So, well, yeah, for, I was reading a study by Ernst and Youngs, and they had mentioned that it's possible by 2025 that the um, upfront cost. So we're talking about the retail price, not the uh, cost of ownership. The upfront cost of an EV will, uh, could possibly be less expensive, at least as expensive as a traditional ICE vehicle. So hopefully that's true, and that comes to fruition. <clears throat> Again, those are forecasts, so they're not actually, you know, we're not saying that that's going to happen. But Ernst & Young's is a pretty uh, good um, indicator of, uh, you know, uh, forecast and methodology. I can tell you this, as far as driving range, I think it's very, um, uh, you know, prudent that you put, bring that up because it's so different by country, right? So China, the range, uh, the consumer is looking for a 258 range EV, you know, in Germany, 383 range. In the U.S., we're looking for 518 miles as a range. So you can see the differentiation in range qualifications for EV, which if you think if you're a manufacturer, you've got to take all of that in consideration. You can't build just for the US, right? So you have to make those affordable vehicles that match range anxiety and um, expectations of every of the countries that you're doing business in. So I think range is key. I think in the US, we will get more um, comfortable with range as more EVs come out and we're more transparent. You can go online today and do route mapping for your charging and go pretty much anywhere in the country and find the chargers. The question is, will it be operable, operable and will it be you know, available right, for you when you park there and get there? So it, it, it's all about evolution. People like Elon and others that are, are great OEM partners that are innovating with, with partnering with chip manufacturers. I think in the next couple of years, you're going to see a decrease in that cost, an increase in range, maybe not a tremendous one, but one that makes us more comfortable. But even today, I'll keep referencing, again, that my only reliable source of actual data uh, in real world is my father. And, you know, he, he drives his Tesla uh, full time. It's not a luxury. It's not a 
secondary vehicle, and he has no trouble in Atlanta, Georgia, to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to North Carolina, down to South Florida. So uh, it seems to be uh, a, a reliable uh, way to uh, transport yourself these days. Uh, anxiety may be just more of a perception than reality. Yeah, you're right. Just uh, just out of curiosity, you say he's driving in Georgia. So they, I remember, you know, when I was a little kid, uh, when I was six years old, we actually used to live there. Yeah. Uh, because due to my father's uh, father's job, there was textile factories there back in the days in '90s, and my dad was uh, was working in a factory, and uh, so I know I remember as a kid is is a very uh, warm place. Do you think the air conditioning affects your father's range at all? Like, what is his comment on it? Just uh, quickly. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be a problem. I haven't asked him specifically about it, but he would mention it because we. I do. I do ask a lot of questions. How do you like it? How's it running? Especially now that I'm in the space. Um, you know, I can tell you, I watched the Tesla video the other day of, of completely taking the car apart and putting it back together. And he mentioned that there are two options for the heater and the air conditioner as far as voltage and power. Um, so you can buy a, a more uh, performance uh enhanced air conditioning and uh system as well so yeah that, that might be an opportunity for uh someone in a in a southern state to buy that enhanced uh package for that um that that i guess condenser compressor uh, part of the vehicle but yeah i haven't heard that interesting good stuff well john really appreciate for your time you're someone that i uh i have a lot of respect because you only speak from the data and you just don't you know you know you just don't think things like you just you know look at the real world data and very reliable source of information um well uh anything you want to add before wrap this up yeah i just want to thank you for uh, coming on board i think uh, uh this type of data and insights conversations is only going to help uh, the industry, especially the intenders, our consumers that are really wondering if EV is right for them, uh, understand that uh, it could be, and it could be right very soon. So excited about the future of our VEV space and look forward to more conversations with you, John. That's great, John. I appreciate it. And I really think uh, people are uh, listening and watching this. If you missed the whole conversation, you can always uh, listen to this in your car and Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or you can watch this on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter, or LinkedIn. So and if, if anybody has any kind of questions, John, before I let you go, uh, what's the best way to reach you? Would you say that would be on LinkedIn? Certainly. Yes, they can reach me on LinkedIn uh, or my email address at john.ellis at coxautoinc.com. Perfect, John. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. And have a great day. Hope to talk to you soon again. Thank you, John. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.